Judges 2, verse 6. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnat Hares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Giash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. And then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. It is amazing to me how history repeats itself. And how often there have been times in our world where people do just that. They come to the Lord. There's revival. They see the Lord. They understand the workings of the Lord. They trust in Jesus. And things are good for a while. For a generation where people are really focused on the Lord and trying to be what he's called us to be. And then a generation arises that really doesn't know the Lord. And we see things go downhill fast. And this has been a cycle if you will, throughout all of history. The book of Judges is interesting to me. It follows seamlessly on the heels of the book of Joshua, picking up immediately where Joshua left off. And this morning, as much as I'd like to say, may your days be merry and bright, I feel a bit like Daniel Handler. Those of you who have read his book series know him better as Lemony Snicket. He wrote the 1999 series of unfortunate events. If you recall that book series, my kids read them and loved them. This is a series of unruly events. What we're about to get into, and I'm gonna borrow actually heavily from the prologue to a series of unfortunate events. I'm just ripping it off and I'm changing a few little things, but listen to me, read it this way. I'm sorry to say that the book you're holding in your hands is extremely unpleasant. It tells an unhappy tale about 12 unruly tribes. Even though they're charming and clever, the Israelites lead lives filled with self-imposed misery and woe. From the very first page of this book, Judges, and continuing through the entire story, disaster lurks at their heels. One might even say they are magnets for misfortune. If you pick up in verse 13, they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord has spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Continuing in our prologue, it is my sad duty to teach these unpleasant tales. But there is nothing stopping you from putting this book down at once, leaving the sanctuary, and reading something happy if you prefer that sort of thing. 
So much for Marion Bright. We are headed, headed into one of the most twisted seasons of Israel's long history. And again, if you want something happy, if you want something go lucky, that is not this book. That is not where we're going. It is fascinating, however, but Christians especially have a real struggle with this book. In fact, commentator Dale Ralph Davis says, the church in general has a problem with the book of Judges. It is so earthy, so puzzling, so primitive, so violent. In a word, it is so strange that the church can scarcely stomach it. And that's true. It's also awesome. This is an awesome book. It is guaranteed to challenge your theology to shake it up. You might even already have heard something in our reading in the verses we've read so far that has bothered you a bit. Something in it that you're already saying, wait a minute, that doesn't square with what I believe, with what I understand, or with what I've been taught. And I'm here to tell you, yeah, but that's what the Bible says. So it may challenge your thinking, unsettle your sensibilities. It may shake up your presumed certainties. I mean, we just get six verses into chapter one and the warriors of Judah are gonna catch up with a king named Adonai Bezek. Adonai Bezek, whose name means Lord of Lightning, they catch up with him and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. That's the start of the book. The Lord of Lightning clearly is not as quick on his feet as he thought he was and certainly not after they catch up with him. And there will be more body parts strewn across the land of Israel than you can imagine by the time we're done with this study. I'm, I'm not kidding. In chapter one, we continue on and we will hear more about cities that are struck with the sword and set ablaze and destroyed and the forced labor of those poor, defenseless Canaanites. Davis says, for many readers, Judges 1 raises more so-called, more of the so-called moral problem of the conquest of Israel. How horrid that Israel butcher innocent Canaanites, wreak havoc and misery, grab their land, and all allegedly at Yahweh's command. I've had this conversation several times while we were in Joshua. Several people have come up and said, this is not right, this is not fair. How could God command the destruction, the genocide, if you will, of a people? Davis continues and says, if only the Canaanites could know how much emotional support they receive from modern Western readers. <laughs> but people who bemoan the fate of the poor Canaanites forget one vital fact. They were not innocent. This was not an innocent people just going about their lives. The Canaanites were grossly wicked. And the conquest, as the Bible shows, was an act of justice, Yahweh's justice. Israel was the divine instrument of his just punishment upon a corrupt and perverted people. The Bible, of course, does not claim the conquest will be palatable, but it does insist it was just. This is one of those times in our faith where we say, I'm either gonna believe God, take him at his word, believe him for what he says and does, or I'm gonna close the book and walk away. You can't have it both ways, one foot in, one foot out. Well, I, I like the Jesus stuff in the New Testament, but I cannot stomach the God of the Old Testament, same God. Davis continues and says, anyway, 
Contemporary Western church members who vicariously and avidly gorge themselves on violence via television and cinema have forfeited any right to throw the first stone at the biblical conquest. And I read that and I thought, oh, he must be referring to those who include Die Hard among their annual favorite holiday classics. <laughs> Judges is an amazing book. And again, timely and instructive. It has everything. It is a fast-paced cinematic thrill ride, R-rated biopic blockbuster. Of the people of Israel and the times of the judges, or what we're calling it, guardians of the unruly. Guardians of the unruly. For those who'd like an outline to follow, I'm gonna give you one here. You might wanna jot this down. It's very simple. Three parts to the book of Judges that we will see that will go by. Three parts, and this study's gonna go by quick, so pay close attention. The first part is Judges chapters one through three, verse seven. Chapter one through three, verse seven, and that is the degeneration of Israel. The degeneration. We end with the generation of Joshua, and it's so good. And we watch it degenerate from there in the first three chapters up to verse seven. Verse eight of chapter three begins part two, which will take us all the way through chapter 16, and that is the deliverer judges of God. The deliverer judges of God. So the degeneration of Israel, part one, the deliverers or the deliverer judges of God, chapters three, verse eight, through chapter 16. Chapter 17, part three, picks up in the last few chapters of the book, 17 through 21, and we'll call that the depravity of an unruly people. The depravity of an unruly people. So the degeneration of Israel, chapters one through three. The deliverer judges of God, chapters three through 16. And finally, the depravity of an unruly people, judges 17 through 21, and that's the book. Now this morning, for the rest of the time, we're just gonna introduce the book. Get a sense of the book of Judges and understand. It is the book of Shopetim. Shopetim, S-H-O-P-E-T-I-M. If you wanna alliterate or transliterate it in, into English, Shopetim is what a Jewish person would read when they opened the book of Judges, the book of Shopetim. And it is translated Judges. It's also translated Deliverers, Rescuers, or you could say Guardians. And that's where we get guardians of the unruly. The Shopa team, the judges, the guardians. There are 14 in all in this book. Fascinating people. One woman among a group of men, 14 in all. There's Othniel, we will see first. And then Ehud and Shamgar. And then Deborah and Gidon. We say Gideon, it's Gidon. There's Tola, Yair, Yephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Avdon, and finally, in this book, Shimshon, we say Samson. And then there are two additional judges that won't even show up in the book of Judges, but they follow along. They are in the time in between, you might say, the judges and the first king of Israel, which will be Saul, not God's choice, but the people's choice. And those two additional judges won't show up until first Samuel. So we'll finish Judges. We'll do the, the delightful, beautiful, sweet book of Ruth, a wonderful romance, and then when we get into 1 Samuel, and all this is Lord willing, 1 Samuel will introduce us to the two final judges, Eli, who's the high priest at the opening of that book, and finally, Shemuel. Uh, Shemuel, and that is Samuel. 
So Ellie and Samuel also served as guardians of the unruly during this almost 400-year period of time. It's about 350 years or so, give or, take, give or take a few years, from Joshua to the first king of Israel. And this is the times of the judges, the guardians of the unruly. As we give a nod to the guardians, and, and, and so three parts this morning, three aspects of the teaching. Number one, we're giving a nod to the guardians to understand something about the guardians in general. And the first thing to know is that many of these guardians have been given a bad rap. A lot of people think of the judges as just some really messed up leaders in Israel. There's a problem with that. First of all, understand that the Judges, the guardians, were called up during extraordinarily difficult times for Israel. These were not easy days in which to lead. Some of these guardians had superpowers, as we'll see. All had divine giftings, and every single one of them, from what you would say best to worst, all of them delivered their people by faith in the one true God. So regardless of the missteps of some of the judges, understand these are people of great faith who step out and do things that many of us would have a hard time doing. So before we judge the judges, before we go after the guardians, understand these are some pretty remarkable people that we're gonna read about, remarkable because of their faith. You're gonna hear about left-handed Ehud's sword going all the way into the belly of the obese Moabite King Eglon. It's one of my favorite Bible stories. <laughs> it literally, the sword goes in and the Bible says, and I quote, the fat closed over the blade. <laughs> it's a great book. You're gonna hear about Gideon putting out the fleece. You're gonna hear about Yetha seemingly sacrificing his own daughter. How does that work? Because he makes a rash vow. You're gonna hear about Shimshon, Samson. That long-haired Fabio of the judges. <laughs> and you laugh, that's good, you all know, you remember Fabio. I don't think second service, they're gonna go, Fabi who? And I'll just tell them he's the Chris Evans of the day, you know, kind of People Magazine, sexiest man alive. That would be Samson. But he seems to pull some really thick-headed stunts. How, how are these people... God's people will look at verse 16 of chapter two. Then the Lord raised up. Note that, underscore that, the Lord raised up. These are God-called people. The Lord raised up judges who delivered them, that is Israel, from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. Verse 18, when the Lord raised up judges for them, note this, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. Again, that is Israel. The Lord called them. The Lord was with them. They had both his calling. They had his power. They had the presence of God. These are people to recognize, not as losers. Yes, they have flaws, and we will note their flaws, flawed human beings, but to a person, 
all of these will show heroic faith. And that is encouraging. In fact, turn over to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, all the way to the other side of your Bible, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And you may know, you Bible students, that this is the, the hall, the great hall of faith, the chapter of, of the faithful people as the Hebrew pastor calls each one of these out. And he says in verse 32, what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong. That's a key. From weakness were made. How, how does someone weak become made strong? It's by faith. It is always by faith. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. If you skip down to verse 80 or 38, it says, of whom the world was not worthy. That's the judges. People of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because, as we know, God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. This is a big, grand thing that God is doing, and we're involved even with the judges. And even with what God was doing with them and through them, he didn't finish all with them because that would only be finished with us as we will gather with the judges to worship Jesus in heaven one day. So, we're calling this study Guardians of the Unruly because that's what they were. And sometimes that's who we are. We can be an unruly lot. And sometimes this unruly lot, we can be those who are unruly and yet called to obedience. Those who were unruly and yet called even some to guardianship. And all called by the grace and the power of God. I heard John Corson say something. I was watching one of his little, little uh, mini bites uh, online this morning. And he said, two truisms in the Bible. There are two kinds of people in the world today. He said, there are saints who know they're sinners. And there are sinners who think they're saints. There are saints who know they're sinners and there are sinners who think they're saints. May we never think ourselves saintly but recognize there but for the grace of God go I. And it is by grace that I have been made a saint and that I can claim righteousness and holiness, that I am a part of that royal priesthood by grace. But I know that I'm just a sinner without the grace of Jesus Christ that makes me a saint so much better than to think you're a saint, not even recognizing the sin in your life. Hebrews chapter two, verse two says, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? 
after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them by both signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So great a salvation. And so great a salvation is given, but it must be received. It must be recognized as coming through faith in the grace of God. So great a salvation is ours if we'll receive it. By the way, did you know that the Hebrew pastor's use of the phrase, so great a salvation, likely comes from one of the guardians, likely comes out of the mouth of Samson. After taking on a thousand Philistines with the spirit of the Lord upon Samson, he has the spirit of the Lord and he fights with the jawbone of a donkey. An amazing battle and with one man with a donkey's jawbone wipes out a thousand people. So if you've ever watched one of those Marvel movies and one guy takes out like 25 people and you go, come on, that's not even possible. Look at Samson. One after another. Bam, I would love to see that. That's one of the ones I'm gonna pop into the heavenly Blu-ray <laughs> and check out. But just after this happened, Judges 15, verse 18, it says, he became very thirsty and he called to the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance, translation, this great salvation. And there are some who think that perhaps the Hebrew pastor, that's where he got the phrase, so great a salvation, because you don't find it anywhere else. But Samson said it. You have given so great a salvation by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi. Lehi means jawbone hill. So that water came out of it, and when Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. Therefore, he named it in Hakor, which means spirit of the calling, or spring of the calling. And as he called to the Lord, and the Lord brought a spring, and that's Lehi today. The point is this. Don't ever devalue what you do not know of another person's faith. You understand what I'm saying? Don't devalue another person's for what you don't know about their life, about their faith, about what's really going on. Our great salvation is undeserved by all. So there's not a one of us here who can stand up and say, yep, I j today was the day. Today was the day I hit perfection. I made it. I am more righteous than anyone else present. I am more holy. I have finally arrived in that place of supreme perfection. There's not a one of us can say that. And yet it's remarkable how quickly, how easily in our flesh we can look at other Christian brothers and sisters and go, well, I wouldn't do it that way when we don't know their faith. And I point this out because people do this with the judges. Oh, Samson was a long-haired fool. You know, Gideon just couldn't make up his mind about anything. And he was sticking his whole sword and hand into that guy's belly. Come on, that's just sick. Don't judge another person's faith. Don't judge the judges, too early. So with a nod to the guardians, the second observation in this very strange book we could call the nauseous carousel. Note this, the nauseous carousel. Now, I used to love merry-go-rounds when I was a kid. I thought they were great. Not anymore. Now, I'm the parent who just sits, you know, I don't go in the, on the horse that goes up and down. In fact, we didn't even ride the carousel this last time we were at, at Disney. Don't even go on it anymore, but I was the, the one who eventually said, I'll, I'll sit on the bench. 
And if I have to be here, I'll sit on the bench just to make sure you don't come flopping off your horse, but I'm not going up and down and up and down and around. <laughs> just thinking about it. The book of Judges or Guardians is a cautionary tale. It's no tale, but it is a cautionary teaching, if you will, historical stories of a nauseous carousel. The people of Israel go round and round and round, and I'll give it to you, I'll give you the pattern, and you see this continuously over this entire nearly four centuries of Israel's existence. It starts with apostasy, or what we would call provocation. Bible says, they provoked me to anger. They provoked the Lord to anger. So it always be begins with a provocation of the Lord in the apostasy of the people. Secondly, that merry-go-round swings around to they play the harlot with other gods. They provoke the Lord to anger. They play the harlot. And then they end up plundered by the enemy. After they're plundered by the enemy, that brings them to their knees into penitent please, that's number four, which then leads the Lord to pity and deliverance, and they come into a season of peace with God until they provoke the Lord to anger again, and it's provocation, playing the harlot, plunder by the enemy, penitent please, pity and deliverance, peace with God, provocation, playing the harlot, plunder by the enemies, penitent please, Prayer, uh, uh, pity and deliverance, peace with God, and provocation, and it just goes around and around and around. You'll see this over and over. Why are there 12 judges raised up in this book? It's because the people keep going around the circle, and every time they come into a season of peace, they start to provoke the Lord to anger again with their apostasies, and then they go chasing after the foreign gods. It's this circle round and round, until literally they spin, they spin right off their track. In fact, we're gonna be done with all 12 guardians in this book, and all of their stories we will be done with by chapter 16. Well, there's 21 chapters in the book, five chapters after we're done talking about the last of the judges before we get to Eli in, in 1 Samuel, five chapters in which Israel simply spirals into deep, dark depravity. When we get to those last five chapters, I'm gonna call it, we're gonna kind of take it as almost its own series called The State of the World. And you will see application in what was happening to Israel in the times of the judges, after the last of the judges is seen, how deep and dark the depravity truly is, and you will look at that, and we will look at the state of the world in which we live and say, wow, it's like reading about today. I told you it's not a pleasant book. If you're looking for something pleasant and soothing, you might want to come back when we open up Ruth. That will be sweet and romantic, but not Judges. Why is it this way? Key verse in the book of Judges, Judges 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Boy, you could write that into the American Constitution. Uh, at least in terms of how people interpret it today, how people are living in our country today. In those days, there was no king in Israel. You can apply that to President Biden however you want. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's where we're at. 
Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. I identify this way. I think I'm that. I believe this. It's whatever your truth is. Whatever is right in your own eyes, do that. And that produces anarchy. It produces deception. It produces anxiety and fear and struggle and brings about pain and problems. We just do what's right in our own eyes. Listen, that's living in Laodicea. That's what the Bible prophetically says about the church in the last days. That not the whole church, but there will be an aspect of the church that looks like Laodicea, the church of Laodicea out of Revelation chapter three. And you know what Laodicea means? Do you Bible students remember what it means? The people's rights. The church of the people's rights. And when I'm all about my rights, when it's all about what I want to do and everything that is right in my own eyes, guess what? It provokes wrath. And God allows then the plunder of the enemy to bring about in us penitent pleas because of who he is. There is then pity and deliverance and it brings me back into peace with God. So many believers, and and I'm just gonna speak about myself, many times in my life where I've wandered from the Lord in terms of faith and trust and, and true following in my heart and things start to go wrong and I cry out to the Lord and it leads me back into peace with God. And I've told you before, rather than saying, Lord, why would you do this to me? Why would you allow this in my life? How about saying, Lord, I'm so sorry I've drifted. What what do you need me to understand? Help me, Father, bring me to you. So many times we talk about, we gotta come to the end of ourselves. A person has to come to the end of himself, to the end of herself, because if I'm, if I'm trusting in self, if I'm believing in what I believe to be right and good, and I'm standing on my principles, even if it contradicts scripture, I'm gonna fall flat on my face. I'm living in Laodicea, and I lack peace with God. By the way, why is this peace so elusive for Christians? This is a question actually that has plagued some of you and me, where we look around at the church and we say, why when we have been promised peace, is it so elusive? Why do we have brothers and sisters stressed out, freaked out, worried, struggling, anxious, depressed, sorrowful? Life is just too hard, can't take it. Why do we see this? I understand seeing this in the world, I truly do. I don't understand why we see this so much in the church. Why is peace elusive? Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five. Just to pause for a moment here as we introduce the book. Because out of that nauseous carousel, they always end up back with peace with God. They just don't stay there. And there's an awful lot of us that 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 happens. We come to the place of peace with God but then something goes awry or, or we start to live by our rights and, and we provoke and we are right back on the carousel playing the harlot, plundered by the enemy until we come back to the penitent pleas. I mean, you see how this works. Why is peace so elusive to the follower of Jesus Christ? Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you stop right there and understand this, That is a fact. That's not a state of mind. 
It's not how you feel. It is an absolute truth that we have been justified by faith, having trusted in Jesus. And because of that, because of Jesus, we now have peace with God. You have peace with God. That is a, a surety. Through whom we also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Paul says not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. See, we have peace with God. We're lined up. That is assured. Doesn't mean you won't have tribulations in this life, just as Jesus said. We have tribulations, but we exult in our tribulations. That's the first time. Second time he said exult. Note that. In verse two, he says, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also exult. We take cheer. We jump. We praise. We're excited about our tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us and that is not a nauseous carousel. That is a wonderful process. See, that's the spiritual process that God would take us through and that is peace with God though we have tribulations which brings perseverance, proven character, hope into the love of God and that is a process by which we are being sanctified. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who died for the ungodly? Christ, not you. You're not saved because you sacrificed yourself. I know this is Christianity 1A. Sometimes we need to be reminded. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're saints, but we know we're sinners. We're not sinners who think we're saints. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That is through Jesus. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Note that while we were enemies, he took us into this process of reconciliation. Through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but now the third time he says, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Note this, we have received the reconciliation. Again, this is not how I feel. This is not a state of mind. This is an absolute truth that we have peace with God. Now, we haven't even gotten to the point of dealing with our anxieties and our fears and when we're freaking out. You just need to understand that the basis of all this, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have put faith in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. That's a done deal. And it is a profound peace. So again, why do so many of us Christians struggle with peace? Well, many of you know the New Testament describes two kinds of peace. There's peace with God, and then there's a second piece, and that's the one that's hard to grasp. That's the one that deals more with my, my thought life and my emotions and my perceptions. 
It's a peace that is hard to get hold of, especially when I'm holding tight to what I think is right. I got my way. This has got to be the right way. It's all that I've known when I think I'm doing what is right and I'm doing what is right in my own eyes. It's very hard to grasp what I would call the supernatural peace of God. So there's peace with God, which is assured, but there's also the peace of God and that's what I think a lot of believers lack or lack from time to time the peace of God. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians 4, 6, when he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is not your peace. It is the peace of God, which is why I call it supernatural. See, I have peace with God through Christ That's assured, I can't change that, I can't win it, he's done that, but I have it. And then there's the peace of God, which guards my mind and my heart. He gives that. That's what we need, that's what's lacking. So let me go back and and clarify this with so many believers, it's not that they lack peace with God, they have peace with God. Salvation is secure, they're going home with Jesus when he calls, and yet they're so worried, so stressed out in the difficulties of this life, that's when we cry out for the peace of God. That is a peace that you cannot attain any other way than by asking him for it. God, I need your peace. I need the peace of God to get off that nauseous carousel of crisis and calamity that we're about to watch Israel go through, the peace of God is only received literally by thankful prayer, by prayer with thanksgiving, and the peace of God will come. Thankful prayer. This, again, flies in the face of our flesh and our carnal thinking that when things are going wrong, we stop and we give thanks. What? Yes, we thank God. So we talked about last week with the pilgrims coming across and the Berkeley 100 leaving only 38 people and yet they established Thanksgiving. Going through very difficult times that we are still people who are thankful because as we pray with Thanksgiving, we receive the peace of Christ, the peace of God. In fact, Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So not only do we have peace with God, but he has called us, invited us into the peace of God, the peace of Christ, that can be ours anytime we ask. You might say, be thankful, but the turkey's behind us. Yes, and I'm thankful. (laughs) But it's thankful prayer that fosters the peaceful life of the follower of Jesus, peace with God through Jesus Christ and the peace of God that guards my heart and my mind. Now, there's one more heads up before we get into understanding and knowing these guardians of the unruly. As we've talked about a nod to the guardians, looked at them briefly, we will really get into their stories. And of course, the nauseous carousel, number three, and this is what I wanna end with this morning, the necessity of the guardian angel the necessity of the guardian angel. You see, for all the guardians of the unruly, there's but one we need. Go back to chapter two and look at verse one. Judges chapter two, verse one. 
says, now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. This took me a long time to comprehend. We've talked a lot about the angel of the Lord, but let's, let's review. Let's rethink. What is it we understand about the angel of the Lord? Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the angel of the Lord appears 56 times. In the Hebrew scriptures, we will come across, we already have several, we will come across multiple times in the book of Judges, 56 times in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew scriptures, we see the angel of the Lord. Six times in Genesis, one time in Exodus, 10 times in Numbers, once in First and Second Samuel, four times in the books of Kings, Five times we see the angel of the Lord in Chronicles, three times in Psalms, one time in Isaiah, six times in Zechariah. But note this, the angel of the Lord is mentioned more in the book of Judges than any book in the Bible. The angel of the Lord will appear a total of 19 times during this horrific season of Israel. Why? Because he is so desperately needed. He tends to come when people are most messed up. He tends to show up when he is needed most. And truly, we could say the guardians of the unruly can't function without the angel of the Lord. He is the backbone. He is the strength. He is the power. He is the one who shows up even to lead the guardians in leading the people out of their plunder. The angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, the Malach Yahweh, I've studied and looked at this angel so long and over the entire time we've been a church fellowship. So coming up on 20 years, we've been looking at the Malak Yahweh and seeking to understand something of the Malak Yahweh. You need to know Yahweh. You know what Yahweh means. It's the name of the Lord. What about Malak? And Malak doesn't mean angel. It's not the word for angel. It's actually the word messenger or sent one. The sent one of Yahweh. The Malak Yahweh is the sent one of Yahweh. And I believe, as I've said many times before, and we have to underscore this this morning, that every single appearance of this messenger is a Christophany. 56 appearances in the Hebrew scriptures, and it's all Jesus before Jesus. It's all Jesus before Christ, if you will. These are pre-incarnate visitations of Jesus Christ, B.C. I like saying it that way. Jesus Christ, B.C. Jesus in the Hebrew scriptures. People are like, well, I like Jesus in the New Testament. I don't know about God in the Old Testament. Well, he's all over the Older Testament. Jesus is present. He is the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. Now, I know some would say, oh, I, I, careful there, Rick. You're being awfully emphatic. I remember going through the Hebrew scriptures the first time as a fellowship together and coming across this angel of the Lord and every single time going, okay, there are similarities here. Is this Jesus? Is the Malach Yahweh really a Christophany? And you know, we see this again and again. Jesus said in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is the sent one of Yahweh. He is a Malach Yahweh. At least you can start out saying he's at least one sent one. Of course, he's the only one 
unique in character and in nature. John 5, 24, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that all that he has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on that last day. John 14, 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. But, but again, okay, but was he sent before the word became flesh? Now, this is not something I grew up believing or understanding. I had no knowledge or understanding of this at all. Was he sent before he became a babe in Bethlehem? It's really interesting in this book because, again, he shows up so many times. Judges 15, verse 17, check this out. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, who's Manoah? Samson's father. Now, it's a great story I won't get into right now, but they're having a conversation, and Samson's dad is actually talking to this Malak Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, and he says to him, what is your name so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? Now, you know what Manoah is doing right there. He's doing what we always do. I'm on the phone with Comcast, and I say, okay, thanks for helping me. Can I have your name, please? We want a little accountability, right? Manoah's saying, tell me your name so I can know, you know, there's some legitimacy to what you're saying. But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is Pele, not the soccer player. His name is Pele. Wonderful. Wonderful. The exact same word, Pele, Wonderful that we see in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Wonder, his name is Wonderful. And the Malak Yahweh says, why are you asking my name? It's Wonderful. Interesting. Psalm 90, verse two says, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We established in our study through John recently, he is God. So we can at least put one thing to rest here. We can lay to rest the question of whether or not Jesus is preexistent because he's God. So no question that he was preexistent, that through him, all things were created, through him and by him and for him. So we know he's eternal, eternally existent. We know he was present. We know Father, Son, Spirit are all eternal. So you can at least accept that from a biblical perspective. And then when you look at the Malak Yahweh and start to say, well, could that be Jesus? Well, absolutely, it could be Jesus because he's already there. But was it him showing up in flesh? Yeah, it's a great question. Micah chapter five, verse two, as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, one whose goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. And there's Jesus. And Jesus said, John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So again, was he preexistent? No question. Is he the Malach Yahweh? 
And there are some who would say, and I, I started out kind of in this place, well, I think in a couple of places that's gotta be Jesus, but it can't be in every place. Thing is, every single place the Malach Yahweh shows up, I look very closely and I don't see how it cannot be Jesus. And this is one of those places. Look again at verse one. The angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, came up from Gilgal to Bochim and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? I, 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 my, and me. Who's talking here? Well, God's talking here. No, the Malach Yahweh's talking here. Well, yeah, but God did all these things. Exactly. The Malach Yahweh has to be God. And so, I submit to you a Christophany that this is Jesus. Why does it have to be Jesus? Because he is the physical representation of the Father. He's the one who shows up in flesh. He's the one who appears as human, became fully human as a babe born in Bethlehem. But prior to that, I'm convinced, and you can still think it through as we go through Judges, I'm convinced all 56 times that we see the Malach Yahweh, this is Jesus showing up early. Isaiah 43, 11, God says, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Isaiah 45, 21, there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior, there is none except me. So if God is Savior and he's the only one, then we come to the birth story in Luke chapter two, verse eight, which says in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord, not the angel, but an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were terribly frightened. Or as the King James says, they were sore afraid, which I guess means they were so scared they were sore. <laughs> but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Well, in Isaiah, God said, there is no Savior but me. So if a Savior is born, we know who the Savior is. Titus chapter two, verse 13, Paul says, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The Malach Yahweh, Jesus. Verse three, therefore I also said, he continues, I will not drive them out from before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. By the way, that's the same thing Joshua was inspired to speak in his famous last words. If you just flip back to Joshua 23, 13, he says, no, with certainty, the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations from before you. Who does he say won't do that? The Lord your God. Who's speaking in, in Judges chapter two there? The Lord their God, same God. By the way, Joshua said there will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. And that's exactly what the Malach Yahweh repeats here, what the angel of the Lord says here. They will become thorns in your sides 
and their gods will be a snare to you. They will experience defeat and distress and disgrace. And that is always the result of disobedience to the Lord Jesus. It's very plain, it's very true. It's why every one of us need not just a, but the guardian angel. I don't need a guardian angel. And, and the Bible, interesting topic for another time, does say all children have a guardian angel, at least, at a minimum. They need them. But do I still have a guardian angel? I do. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. I need him as my guardian. By the way, this is an amazing moment for Israel in Judges chapter two because everyone heard him. It says he came up from Gilgal to Bochim and all the people are there and he speaks to the people. The people, remember when God spoke up on Mount Sinai and the people said, oh, don't have him speak to us. We're just gonna die. They couldn't handle it. It was overwhelming to hear the booming voice of God, the father above Mount Sinai. And they said, Moses, you talk to him. And then you come back and tell us what he says. Well, now, now the Malach Yahweh speaks to the people and their reaction is not terror and dread, have someone else talk to us. They can hear him. Why? It's the Malach Yahweh. The exact representation of the nature of God. But he comes and he is speaking to the people at this place called Bochim, they all heard him. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, verse four, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And so they named that place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. Bochim means weeping. By the way, weeping can be cleansing. Why does the Lord allow tribulations and pains? In fact, according to judges and other places in scripture, he even says in Isaiah, I'm the one who causes calamities. Why would God cause pain, cause calamity, cause hardship in our lives? I'm not talking about the hardship of sin that we bring on ourselves. I'm talking about hard times that it's like, where did that come from and why did that come and why does God cause that? Because sometimes he knows we need to weep because weeping is cleansing because it brings us back to our our father. I've told you this, I think, many times, but my dad, when I was a kid growing up, I grew up in, in the uh, generation that got spankings and, and, and much deserved. <laughs> and, and I remember to this day that I would get a spanking from my dad as a little kid, you know, and, and I'd be in tears and he would always gather me up into his lap afterward and hold me until I stopped crying. Now, how weird is that? What a psycho to beat your child and then hold him. <laughs> no, it was exactly what I needed. I needed a father to bring me to weeping, to break me of my sin or whatever it was that was causing me to be disobedient. And then he gathered me onto his lap. And that's what the Lord does. He will bring us into places, seasons, times where we're weeping. And weeping is cleansing. It helps us to recognize disobedience we might not even see otherwise. And then he draws us into the lap of grace. He brings us close. And so all of Israel on this day, they heard him, they recognized, they all repented in tears because, well, <laughs> these are still the days of Joshua. But verse six goes on then, as we read, when Joshua dismissed the people, the sons of Israel each went to his inheritance to possess the land the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. 
Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnat Hares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaosh. Yeah, yeah, Rick, we already read that. I know, but I, I'm wondering if you caught something here. Did you notice that here it says that they buried Joshua at a place called Timnath Hares? But if you look back in Joshua chapter 24, they buried him at a place called Timnat Sarah. Here it's Hares, there it's Sarah, and, and people will look at that, critics of the Bible will look at, look at that and say, well, that's just one of the many contradictions of the Bible. First of all, understand, Timnat Sarah and Timnat Hares are the same place. They're the same place. Well, why the two different names? Well, it's interesting because both names share, uh, they're synonymous, if you will, although one has more of a meaning that goes this way and one has more of a meaning that goes this way, and yet both are used synonymously. Timnat Sarah, Joshua 24, means abundant portion. So Joshua was buried in the place of abundant portion, and that's very picturesque for a man who was a servant of the Lord and all that he did for the Lord and how the book of Joshua ends is all the people trusting in the Lord. So abundant provision, that's where it ends there. But now we begin the judges, and it's called Timnath Hares. Why is that different? Well, now Himnot, Timnath Hares means portion of the sun god. So there's a shift. There's a shift. Now it's possible, uh, Timnath Hares, the reason why the writer of Judges, and by the way, I think the writer of Judges is Samuel, if you wanna jot that down, we don't, the, the name of the writer is not given, but it's very likely Samuel. And there are many clues, clues throughout this book that point to a 12th century BC time of writing. So it would have been just after, or at the tail end of the times of the judges, it would have been written around the time when Samuel was alive. And we see this even in the writing of the book itself. And I'll point those out as we go through the book. But, the point of calling this Sun City is either to recall the faith of Joshua, the faith of Joshua, what do you mean? Joshua chapter 10, verse 12, where Joshua said, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, O moon in the valley of Aijalon. And remember they had the long extended day where the sun stood still? Why did the sun stand still? Because Joshua believed God could do it, and God did it. So that's a possibility, but the other possibility is Timnat Hares is indicating he was buried in this place, but Hares, that's a pagan god. And that's right where the people were headed. Either way, what, what's happening here between Joshua and Judges is a sharp relief, a sharp contrast in the distinction between the victorious age of Joshua and the dark seasons of the next generation of the judges in Israel and of the people who did not know the Lord. And as I said earlier, the same distinction is at work in the world today. The same distinction, sadly, we even see in some arms of the church where they just don't seem to know the Lord, where it's more important in some churches to do what is right in our own eyes than to know the Lord and do what is right by him. I could call out multiple examples, but you know them all. So we are in this place where Joshua was wonderful and we talked about the victorious Christian life, but where do we live? In the times of the judges, in the times where people are doing what's right 
in their own eyes. Look at verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. And again, that is so descriptive of the state of our world. A world that does not know the Lord. And it's why the crises and the calamities continue to mount all around us. Brothers and sisters, I don't say this to be discouraging. I say it to be truthful and honest that we're not gonna see it get better. You're gonna see more of the same. You're gonna see more government overreach in all countries. You're gonna see more power-hungry, power-mad people. You're gonna see more crises. You're gonna see more shootings. You're gonna see more murders. By the way, it's interesting to me that the four students, tragically, who were murdered in Idaho, that wasn't gun violence, but no one's calling for knife control. I'm just saying. The problem is not in the implement of murder. The problem is the murderer's heart. And people's hearts are going bad because, well, because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of most is growing cold. And this is the season we're in. It doesn't mean we can't continue to live a victorious Christian life like we talked about in Joshua, but that life is lived by faith. And that's why the guardians are victorious. That's why the judges actually come about some fantastic, wonderful, supernatural victories because they have faith and they continue to trust the Lord. So you do see victory in the book of Judges, but it's painted against the dark canvas of unbelief and people doing what's right in their own eyes. And Jesus said, Luke chapter seven, verse seven, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him night and day? Will he delay long over them? The answer is of course not. I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Taking your seat on the nauseous carousel of calamity always begins the same way. We'll see it begin the same way for Israel. It begins the same way for you and for me. It begins with a break in relationship. It begins when a person or persons no longer know the Lord, which is why at the heart of everything we do, whether it's worship, sharing communion, fellowshipping in each other's homes, opening the word of God. The reason I spent so much time on the Malach Yahweh is this, we have to know the Lord. Everything must be about knowing the Lord because when we fail to know the Lord, we go into dark times. We're gonna get to know the guardians and all their faithfulness and yes, their flaws, but above all, the outstanding question of this book, and I leave it with you this morning, is do you know the guardian who was sent? The guardian who was sent. This is a wild ride, but it is also an eternally serious call to the only guardian angel who can save you and me. And even when your life feels like it's spiraling into crisis and calamity, the peace of God in Christ Jesus still waits for you to turn to him and to trust in him. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.25, for you are continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And that is Jesus. 